0: Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you are our shepherd. Oh, Lord, you're our Jesus. You're our own very Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. You are our Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father on high, making intercession for us, waiting for our entrance into heaven. Lord, we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. Lord, we pray this morning for all of us, Lord, that you would give us open ears to hear all that your Spirit is saying to us, open eyes to see all that you are doing in our lives, and open hearts to receive all All that you want to place in our hearts by your Spirit. Lord, we want to be more women of Jesus Christ and less women of this world. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in us divinely. Lord, I pray that we would no longer feel the rocks and the stones being hurled at us, but we would be so focused that all we could see is you standing on the right hand of the Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, have you ever noticed that there are some messages that people don't like to hear? One of those messages is you are a sinner. I don't know why that doesn't go over well but it doesn't. I remember sharing the Lord with a woman in England one time, and it was a great conversation. I was telling her about Jesus, and she's like, yes, yes, that's what I need. And I said, okay, you just need to admit you're a sinner. And she said, oh, but I'm not. They're like, well, you really are. No, I'm not. Well, you are. No, I'm not. And I, you know, I had to go to great lengths to explain to her. You know, it's a little embarrassing. Like, you really are a sinner, okay? You've really done bad things. And I had to go to great lengths to show her that she was a sinner. Another message that people don't like to hear is that there is nothing you have done or that you can do that qualifies you for eternal life. If you remember in Mark chapter 10, this rich young ruler. Now, if anybody had everything going for him, it was this young man. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And and Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Obviously, young man, you are realizing there is a quality in me that's of God that you don't have. And Jesus points to the law and the young man says, I've done all these since my youth, but what do I still lack. And when Jesus tells him what he lacks, we're told that the young man went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. People don't like to think that all of their good works actually mean nothing. People also don't like to be told that their monuments, the things that they put their confidence in are temporal and will not not qualify them for heaven. People like to put their faith in institutions. They like to tell you where they graduated from, or where what company they work for, or what they live nearby. Whenever we're in Europe or in another area of the United States and people say, where do you live? I always say, down the street from Disneyland. <laughs> of course, it's you know 15 miles down the street, but I live off of Harbor Boulevard. But, you know, people always want to relate to tabernacles and temples. People don't like to be told that their heritage, their bloodline, their connections to well-known people do not avail. You know, I don't know, you meet people and they'll say, well, I'm German, I'm English, I'm French. Yes, but that doesn't avail. It, it doesn't do us any good. The heritage. The Jews wanted to take great stock in their heritage. And the John the Baptist said, don't say you have Abraham for your father. That's not going to cut it. Because God is able to raise up from these very stones children to Abraham. But we always want to think that maybe our ancestry, you know, we go to Ancestry.com, am I related to anybody famous? And you know what I found? I have more people told tell me that they have gotten their ancestry done and they're related to Jesse James. All I want to say is he must have been a prolific Irish young lad. (laughs) But Jesus said that salvation for men was impossible. He said in Mark 10, 27, when Peter said, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus said, With men it is impossible. None of these things will avail. Not one will put you in good graces with God. But Jesus did say, with men it is impossible, but But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Even as believers, there are times when we want to believe we are adding to God. I'm going to help you out. God, have you ever done that? Lord I'm going to give you two weeks, and if you don't come through in two weeks, then I'm going to go to plan B. So you've got two weeks to work, Lord, but I do have a plan B. You know what the Lord says? Get rid of plan B. Let it only be me. Trust me completely and in trust to me completely. But don't we do that? We'll say, well, Lord, you know, I've got this one covered. You can do the next trial, this one I can handle. And we find out we really, really, really can't handle it. Because without God, without Jesus, as Jesus told us in John 15, 5, we can do nothing. The truth about ourselves, as David said, my goodness is nothing apart from you. We cannot be good without God. We cannot do anything profitable without God. In fact, without the Lord, we are on a self-destruct course. We really, really are. If we did what we only wanted to do, oh my goodness, it would be Betty Davis movies and Krispy Kreme donuts with a chocolate every once in a while. They'd, in a bathtub. They'd never be able to get me out of the bathtub. They'd have to use one of those cranes, you know, like, oh, she died in the bathtub. You know, It would be so bad. We would self-destruct if we were allowed to do everything we wanted. If we were allowed to do everything we wanted, would we ever, 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 ever stop at a red light? Don't red lights make you mad? Come on, be honest. They impede your progress. You say, I would be on time if it were not for red lights. If every man did what was right in his own eyes, we would self-destruct. But God is a savior. He is always saving us. He is saving us from ourselves and our own self-destructive courses. And he is saving us from the destructive intentions of others. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.10, God who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he still will deliver us. The only productive things we have done and can do have been because God is with us, working through us, and preserving us. When we get to this place, when we truly grasp the concept, that without Jesus, we are nothing. And without Jesus, we can do nothing. When we truly, truly grasp onto that, this incredible transformation takes place in our lives. And all of a sudden, our perspective has changed. We look back and we see how God was preserving us all throughout our lives. Have you had one of those experiences? where you had something maybe that you would always like, God, I forgive you for that thing you let happen to me in 1988. Maybe you're like that. You know, God slipped up in 1988. He's been really good since then. But 1988, there was this one day. Maybe you have one of those in your life. But then there comes this time where all of a sudden your eyes are open, and you see, wow, Lord, you were even in that i had a woman when we lived in england and she came to me very 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 upset she had had a miscarriage she had two children she had a miscarriage and the miscarriage resulted in a hysterectomy and she was so angry she had always wanted to be a mother of of lots and lots of children she adored the two that she had and she was so angry with god and she was angry with me as a pastor's wife because I was representing God. It wasn't a happy time for God and me as we sat there listening. And she was um, just so, so upset. And, you know, I, I said to her, I said, well, actually, the Lord spoke to me and said, tell her it's time to quit being the comforted and become a comforter. And I remember saying to the Lord in my mind, because I wasn't about to say this out loud, Lord, this conversation's not going very well right now as it is. And I think if I say that to her, she's going to punch me. <laughs> and again, the Spirit of the Lord just spoke to me. So I, I said to her, I want to take you to Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I showed her the God of all comfort who comforts us that with the comfort of himself that we might be able to comfort others that are going through this. Well, three weeks passed, and there was a, a woman in our fellowship who brought a baby to full term, and the little girl uh, died soon after she was born. And she came to church the Sunday after that, just needing a word, needing a touch. And it was the woman who I had given 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to who went and comforted her and spoke with her, prayed with her, and she came to me and she said, I see it. I see it. She said, what I took as a curse was a comfort of God so I could comfort others. It was worth it. It was worth it. You see, when we realize that we are nothing and without the Lord we can do nothing, we all of a sudden have this perspective that God is in it and he is going to use everything for glory. Next, when we realize we are nothing and without him we can do nothing, we become conduits for the Lord to work. You know, I have people come up to me and they say, Cheryl, my finances are a mess. I need prayer. You know, the temptation is to give them some financial counsel. But praise the Lord I don't have any financial counsel. I wouldn't even know where to begin to counsel them financially. I have nothing to give them, but I can give them Jesus. Somebody comes up to me and says, Cheryl, you know, my arms hurt, my hands are going numb. I'm not a diagnostician. I cannot tell them medically what is wrong with them. But I can be a conduit for Jesus to come through and heal them. But the minute I try to be something, I cut off the flow of the spirit to this person because now they're getting Cheryl's very weak, very bad, you know, magazine advice. Everything I've learned, I, I got from Reader's Digest, it's not strong stuff. How much better just to go empty? And let the Lord flow. But that happens when we grasp the fact that we are nothing and without him we can do nothing. And then here's the third thing that happens. When we grasp that we are nothing and without him we can do nothing, we can do everything through Christ who strengthens us. It no longer becomes about my abilities or my comforts or what I've done or what I can do. It is the world is open because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I'm empty and it's all about him. I can walk on water because it's all about Jesus and it has nothing to do with Cheryl Broderson. has nothing to do with Cheryl Broderson's righteousness, her goodness, her deeds, her talents, her education, her abilities. Nothing. Hallelujah. It has everything to do with jesus and everything is based on jesus and what he can do and it has nothing to do with me but there are those who want to fight against this truth can you believe it there are still even believers who want to find some bit of goodness or something don't tell me i'm nothing i gotta be something there's gotta be something fine go ahead be something But you won't be able to do everything like those who are nothing can. But, you know, we're always in this world trying to find some kind of significance, aren't we? We want to feel like we have a perfect purpose. We have significance. And it's only when we give up that significance and say, my only significance is that Jesus Christ lives in my heart, that we become truly, truly significant. Because there is no significance in this world. We want to believe in the greatness of men. Well, I'm a follower of so-and-so. We want to believe in the greatness of the law, or I keep this ritual, or I follow this rule, or I follow these regulations. We want to think it's by what we're doing, what we're observing, that qualifies us. No, it will not give us the power that we need and want It's not about monuments. It's not about where we've been or attended or what we believe in or what we work for. And it's not about our heritage. Those we're related to. Nothing. You know, there is that false doctrine that says God helps them that help themselves. And the truth is God helps those who cannot and will not help themselves. That's the truth. When we realize that we are nothing, that is when we can be everything God desires us to be. Now, maybe this week as you were looking at Stefan, you said, I cannot be martyred. I could never do that. That guy is absolutely amazing. But you see, Stephen's secret was this. He knew he was nothing, and that made him a conduit of everything that God had. From grace to faith to power to wisdom to peace to vision to glory because he realized he was nothing. Stephen is introduced to us in Acts chapter 6, and he comes to prominence because of a deficit. There are these Hellenist widows who are being neglected. Now, Hellenist widows were Greek speaking women. And in Israel, the Israelites were divided into two people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now, the Hebrews were those who kept to the Hebrew culture, and the Hellenists were those who embraced Greek culture. After Alexander died, Alexander the Great died, the whole conquered world, the Greek Empire, was divided up between his four generals, And two of those generals, Seleucus and Ptolemy, fought over Israel again and again and again. Ptolemy was in Egypt, and Egypt was heavily influenced by Greek culture. Seleucid was Greek, and he wanted to influence Israel with Greek culture. Well, a Seleucid king that came to power was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, And what he did is he actually began to persecute any Jews who did not adhere to Greek culture. So many of the Jews, in order to spare their lives, the lives of their family, they embraced Greek culture. They embraced the Olympics, and they came and they uh, built an Olympic forum in Jerusalem, which the Hebrew Jews were so upset about. And so there became this conflict, this this civil unrest among the Jews, whether you were a Hellenist or whether you were a true Hebrew. The Hebrews were the ones who resisted, were persecuted during the entire reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. So what happened is, when the Romans took over, there was still this division. But now, both Hellenists... And Jews begin to embrace Jesus Christ. But this rift came into even the Christian faith. And so as the disciples, who are Hebrews, are confronted with this problem that the Hellenist Jews, and it doesn't say felt they were being neglected, but they were being neglected, they said, all right, I want you to choose Choose seven men from among you. Choose seven Hellenists. That way you can be sure that there's no prejudice. And that way, as we're embracing these Hellenist believers, you will see that there's no prejudice. We're willing to take them in. We're willing to accept them. So of these seven men that were chosen, Stephen was one of those. Now also... The apostles realized that they couldn't do um, all of the ministry. That there was a special call on their life. And the call on their life was to teach and to study the word of God and to pray. They realized that they needed to give themselves completely over this. And yet, there was a need for administration. This other call. This other gifting. And so they found these seven men Stephan, Philip, Prochorus, Nicano, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and they prayed over these men and they laid their hands on them. They actually gave them apostolic authority. Now it's interesting to note that the qualifications for these men, even though they were going to be administrators or servants or deacons, was they needed a good reputation. They needed to be full of the Holy Spirit, and they needed to exercise wisdom. No matter what the call, they needed to have wisdom, good reputation, and be full of the Holy Spirit. Didn't matter what the call was. If the call is giving yourself to the Word of God and prayer, you need to be full of the Holy Spirit. If the call is serving others, you need to be full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation and wisdom. In other words, what is it saying? It's saying that we all need to be full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation and wisdom, no matter what the call is in our life. If you're called to be a mother, guess what? You need to have a good reputation, be full of the Holy Spirit, and you need a lot of wisdom. Because you need to know who really did it. But every call needs this. So they prayed again over these seven men, laid their hands on them, this transfer of authority. And it was a great solution. And it was a blessed solution. Because we find that the word of God spread, the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came to faith. But Stephen distinguished himself even among these seven because the Spirit was on him, and we're told that he's full of faith. What does that mean to be full of faith? It means that Stephen knew he was nothing and Jesus was everything. That's really what it is, to be full of faith. It means Stephen was not dependent on himself, dependent on others, dependent on monuments, He was dependent on God alone. You see, we really get more faith when three things happen. And here's the first, when we lose faith in others. When we realize that people are always going to disappoint us and we stop trusting people. Secondly, we get greater faith when we realize (laughs) that circumstances are always going to let us down. That they're always going to fail us that that opportunity like oh if this just comes together and that happens when we realize that our plans will always fail us we're we're more we're more in the structure of faith but finally when we lose faith in ourselves when we realize we cannot trust ourselves when we recognize our own weaknesses our own inabilities we are so weak we get stopped by red lights and we're late. Even if we're early, we're late. When we realize the weaknesses of our humanity, we then turn and we have the potential to become full of faith. When our reliance and our hope is on Jesus alone. I was thinking about this, and it's a really bad illustration, but it's a really good illustration. But it's really bad because it's a gambling illustration. Because the idea is when you put all your chips on Jesus and you let the wheel spin, when you say, you know what, I'm putting everything, my whole investment of my life and everything I am and have, I'm putting it on Jesus, that's when we're full of faith. And that's when we become conduits. That's when we get the right perspective. That's when we can do anything and everything that god calls us to do we're also told that stephen was full of power but i want you to know that the full of power is the result of being full of faith we're told he did great wonders and signs among the people i want you to know that's because he was full of faith that he realized it's all about god we're told that he had irresistible wisdom they could not resist the wisdom with which he spoke Because he realized it was not about Stefan or Stefan's eloquence, but it was all about God. And we're told he was filled with the Spirit. Because when we realize it's all about Jesus and not about us, what do you crave? More of Jesus, more of Jesus, less of me. I wanna be nothing so Jesus can be everything. And he was filled with the Spirit and he was a true conduit for Jesus to work through. Now we're told that these men from the synagogue of freedmen got in a dispute with Stephan. In fact, the truth is they didn't like what he was telling them because you know what he was telling them? He was telling them, you're sinners. You need Jesus. He was telling them that the law could not Put them in good grace with God. No matter how much they obeyed it, adhered to it, how many rituals or regulations they kept, it would not put them in good grace with God. And they realized that Stefan had something they didn't have. Stefan had power. Stefan was doing signs and wonders. Stefan had irresistible wisdom that they could not refute. These men obviously took great pride in their heritage. This is the only place we ever hear about this synagogue. And I've looked up this synagogue, and truth be told, commentators don't really know who these men were except for they're from notable places. And obviously they took pride in where they came from and who they were, that they were freed men. They gave themselves a title. Oh, whenever we have a title, we're in trouble, don't we? I belong to the... You know, Y-M-C-A. I guess it's Y-W-C-A, excuse me. But, you know, we're, we, whenever we take pride, you know, we try to, like, this is what I belong to. We try to take pride. These are my people. That, that pride. And these men had pride. Obviously, they're influential because they had access to the elders and the scribes. But they, we're told they were absolutely enraged at Stefan. It wasn't that they just didn't like him. They were enraged. They were out of control. So they secretly induced men to falsely accuse Stephan of speaking against Moses and God. Hear these men. We're of the synagogue of freedmen. We keep rules and regulations and rituals, but we're going to break them to get this guy. We're going to go against everything that we stand for And talk about we're going to lie. We're going to bring in false witnesses. Because we cannot resist his wisdom. We're told that they stirred up the people. The elders and the scribes. They actually created chaos and a riot. They seized him. They took him before the council. They brought these false charges against Stephen. Saying he doesn't cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. The temple. That he speaks blasphemous words against the law, that he says Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses. And as they're falsely accusing Stephan, because Stephen is just so about Jesus, they look at him and he's radiant and he's got the face of an angel. It's not phasing him. Oh, we're women. Everything phases us. I want to be so unfazed. I'm praying, Lord, make me unfazed by the accusations, by the slander. Don't let me hear the barbs. And it's almost as if Stephan is not even hearing it. It's just, wow, they really don't want to know they're sinners. He's all right. And then they tell him to give. To give a defense. All right, speak. Defend yourself. But you know what? He doesn't defend himself against the charges. Instead, he's going to take away every single prop that these men have built their houses on. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, He who hears my word and does it. I'll tell you who he's like. He's like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the floods came and the wind blew vehemently against it, it stood. But he who hears my word and does not do it, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms and the floods and the wind comes, the house fell and great was its destruction. So he's going to show them the false foundation of their house. And he's going to show them that life is about what God has done and only about what God has done. He begins first with there's these men that they pride themselves in. They pride themselves, we're the children of Abraham. Abraham. Remember to Jesus in John chapter 8, they said, we're not born of fornication, we're the children of Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were truly the children of Abraham, you would not persecute me, because Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it. But they took pride in Abraham. So Stephen begins with Abraham, and he says about Abraham, Abraham was not Jewish. Surprise, surprise, surprise. The father of Israel was a Chaldean. He was an Iraqi. He was a Chaldean. And do you know what? He was living in a pagan country among pagan people until what? Until God called him. He would have remained a pagan. He would have remained in a pagan country if not for the call of God. And then we find that God called him out. God preserved him. God gave him a promise. God told Abraham what would happen, and God did it all. We find in Abraham's life it was not about Abraham. It was about God, because Abraham was nothing. Then we come to Joseph, and he's saying about Joseph, if God hadn't intervened with Joseph... Not only would Joseph have been murdered, but the patriarchs would have all died. There would have been no preservation of Egypt or the Hebrews had it not been for God's intervention. Here's the patriarchs, those people that you want to pride yourself in, and you know what they did? They tried to kill their brother and chose instead to sell him into slavery. They tried to get rid of the very one that God would raise up to preserve the Jewish nation. You know what he's saying to them? You're your own worst enemy. You're your own worst enemy. And then he said, and this Joseph that you pride yourself in, he was forgotten. He was temporary. The Egyptians forgot about him. It didn't bring any lasting respect from those outside of Israel. And then he goes to Moses and he says, Moses would have died by the hand of Pharaoh if God hadn't preserved him. And then we see that Moses was actually rejected by the very people that he was to deliver. When he thought he was something and went to his people to present himself at 40 years old as a strapping man, educated with the finest Egyptian education, and deigned to step down to his people for their deliverance, They said, get out of town. We don't want you. When Moses tried to do it in his own strength, he ended up being a murderer. He ended up disqualifying himself from the job. And the Hebrews said to him, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses had to flee to the wilderness. You see, God has to show those that he's going to use that they're nothing. He has to break them and make them nothing before he can make them something. And that's what we see in the life of Abraham and Joseph and Moses. They all had to be broken before they could be used by God. And Moses, when he came back at 80, broken, working for his father-in-law, as a shepherd, which was an abomination to the Egyptians, and he comes back to Egypt to deliver the people of God. God uses him, but he speaks to these people and he said, there's going to be a greater prophet than me, and him you will hear. So Stephen is saying Moses pointed to something superior. He pointed to God. Then Stephan talked to them about the law. Again, they prided themselves. We keep rules and rituals and regulations. And he tells them first that the law, in verses 38 through 39, the law was not given by Moses. The law came by angels. It was given by God on Mount Sinai. It is higher than Moses. Moses broke the law. He tells them that their forefathers, when they heard the law, they didn't like it. They rejected it. They refused to obey it. Because, you see, these people thought possession of the law was enough. We were given the law. You see, even even in Moses' time, well, we've got the law. It doesn't matter if we keep it. We've got it written on stones, and it's ours, so we're superior. And he said, no, not only... Does that law not come by your man Moses? It's God's law. None of you ever kept it. And being in possession of the law only makes you greater debtors to the law because you know what you should do, and you can't do it, and you don't do it. So the law, he takes away the prop of their patriarchs that they're trusting in. He takes away the prop of trusting in regulations and rules and rituals. Like, well, I'm better than everybody else because I do this. I butter my bread on both sides. No, there's no ritual. It's not how you pray. You know, let, let's just take it to our, our level. I know people that pride themselves in the way they pray. I know a woman that prided herself that she used Hebrew words in her prayer, so she thought her prayers were better than everybody else's. I use English. You know, I think the best prayer in the world is the prayer that says, help. You know, remember the two men, the Pharisee, and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. I'm not an extortionist. I'm not a, you know, I keep the law. And Jesus told us that man was not justified. That man was not heard. But the man who smote his chest, the tax collector, and said, oh, God, forgive me. I don't deserve any of your grace, any of your goodness. Jesus said, God heard that prayer. But even as Christians, sometimes we pride ourselves in the methodology of prayer we use. I was talking to one man, and he says, do you pray through the temple? No. I run straight into the throne room, throw myself down before the throne of grace, and say, help. That's how most of my prayers go. It's not pretty. I'm a desperate woman. I know I need Jesus. And I know nothing else will avail. Remember Elijah, Elisha? Remember the woman who was, um, she built a house for Elisha. And so he told her that the Lord was going to give her a son. And he prayed for her. And she had a son. And then the son was out in the field working with his father. And the son had a headache. And he suddenly died. And the woman put the son up on Elisha's bed. And then she went. She saddled a donkey. And she was headed towards Elisha. And the servant said, what are you doing? And she said, out of my way. Nothing's wrong. Her husband said, what's wrong? She said, nothing. Out of my way. She gets to the servant servant of Elisha. And he says, what's wrong, Gehazi? And she says, nothing. Get out of my way. And she has to get straight to Elisha. And when she finds Elisha, she falls on her face. And she said, why did you give me a son? I love that. She doesn't go, excuse me, I've got a problem. She's like, ah! That's some of the best prayers. He just goes straight with boldness because of Jesus into the throne room and just go, ah! Years ago, my... Um, my son, um, Char, we were at um, an Indian reservation at the water slides, and he had a sodi pop, as he called it. And he took a sip of his sodi pop, not knowing that there were five bees in it. Yeah, and the five bees stung his tongue. He's sticking out his tongue, and I see the bees just attached, going, Aah! and he's going, Aah! and so um, the lifeguard, the paramedic was there, and you know they've got life flight, just in case he's got an allergic reaction to bee stings, because it's his tongue. And so he's pulling out these barbs on my son's tongue. And he's asking my son, you know, what happened? And he said, I took a sip of my Thotie Pop and a bee. It stung me. Ah! You know, and he just, every other sentence was just, ah! You know, as he thought about it. And I really feel like sometimes I run into the throne room and I'm just like, ah! There were these bees in my thody Pop. Ah! And they stung me. Ah! And then they were pulled out. Ah! You know, And that's how I'm communicating. And you know what? I'm heard. Because it's not about the rules and the regulations and the rituals. It's I got Jesus. And that gets me a free pass to the throne room. And I'm there. And I'm getting everything I need. Because I'm nothing and he's everything. And it's not because of what I have done. Or my righteousness. But because I got the pass of Jesus. And I know that I need him, and I know that he gets me right into that throne room where I can pour out my heart and my problems, and I am heard. It's not about the methodology. It's not about how many chapters of the Bible we read. It's not about how we read the Bible. It is simply about believing the word of God because it's true and we can trust it, but we can't trust ourselves going on because i could go on all day but i got a retreat i got a retreat from all of you and i got a retreat to the retreat (laughs) that the temple is not to be trusted in now he's going to talk about their institution this thing that they believe in i was just reading this morning in uh, mark chapter 13 where the disciples are saying to jesus look at those huge stones Now, in Jesus' time, if anything seemed permanent, then certainly the temple seemed permanent. These massive stones that were so perfectly fitted together, it was one of the wonders of the world. This temple, this temple of Herod, was just an incredible archaeological feat, and it seemed like nothing Nothing could ever penetrate or hurt the temple. But Jesus said, you see these stones? I'm telling you, not one stone will remain on the other. And we're told in 70 AD, when Titus attacked Jerusalem because of the golden roof and the fire in the temple, that the gold melted between the stones, and the Roman soldiers were so greedy to get the gold that they literally pushed all the stones apart so they could get just the little increments of gold that had gone between the stones. Oh, but it seems so permanent. But Stephan is going to tell them that as long... It, uh, he's going to tell them that it began with a tabernacle, this temple began with a tabernacle and a tabernacle was a tent. And God said, "Make this after the pattern." In other words, the tabernacle was not the real thing. It was not the substantial thing. It was a pattern. It was a look alike. It was a foreshadowing of something that was to come. And then he said it it became a temple. But God said of this temple in Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? He's saying it's about God. It's not about a building. God is bigger than the building. Jesus said to his followers, he said, you know, you guys say if you swear by the temple, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, well, then that, that's, that counts. He said, you fools, what is greater, the gift on the altar or the temple that sanctifies the gift on the altar? You see, there was this, such a materialistic mindset. We've got our monument. I belong to this corporation or i belong to this association or i'm a member of this or that and that that does not avail you that will not work that doesn't make you something and that will not bring the power of god into your life or the wisdom of god or the fullness of the spirit then he goes to not putting their trust in their forefathers or their heritage And he reminds them that their forefathers rejected both Joseph and Moses. The first time they saw these men, they rejected them. They wanted to kill them. The forefathers wanted to go back to Egypt. The forefathers worshipped idols. The forefathers resisted the Holy Spirit. The forefathers persecuted the prophets. These are not the people you want to be related to or associated with. These are not the people that you want to take pride in. You know, yes, I'm related to crazy Aunt Dizzy. No! It's not the person that you want everyone to know you're related to. And then he goes to an indictment. He says to them, you know what? You're just like your forefathers. They're the ones who killed the prophets. And you killed the greatest prophet of all, the Messiah from God, the just one. You betrayed him, and you murdered him. You did not keep the law. You are murderers. You have broken the law. You bore false witness against him. You lied about him, and you crucified him. You have broken your own law, and you have rejected your own Messiah. These men had the typical reaction of people whose props have been removed. Have you ever wondered why the message of Jesus Christ angers people? Why you can say any other name and people are all right, but you say the name of Jesus? Why Jesus is so prejudiced against in the public school system? Why Jesus? Because the message is is that you need him. Without him, you are a sinner That nothing else will avail, nothing you've done, nothing you are, no one you're related to. Nothing you're associated with but Jesus. And this is the reaction. We're told that they were cut to the heart, that they gnashed at him with their teeth, that they cried out with a loud voice, they plugged their ears, they ran at him, they cast him out of the city, they hurled stones at him. Oh, men hate the message that nothing but Jesus avails. But what a contrast! Here are these men that are totally out of control. May I say that they must have looked so ugly, 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 out of control. You know, I'm sorry, but there's nothing worse than than that face of rage, is there? It just like contorts, and that's like, it's just so ugly. They're totally out of control, gnashing with their teeth, stopping their ears. But here's Stephan. Here's the one who realizes I don't have any props. I just have Jesus. Without Jesus, I am nothing. Here he is. He's of good reputation. None of those charges against him could stand. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of wisdom. He's full of faith. He's full of power. Signs and wonders are being done by his hands. He has irresistible wisdom. He shines and radiates. He has comfort in the midst of persecution. He has joy and expectation and a vision of glory. As he looks up, he says, look, look. Look, all of you persecutors, look. I see the Son of Man, and the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When Jesus, in Luke chapter 23, verse 69, is before the high priest, the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell me, are you the blessed one, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he said, it is as you say, and after this, you will see the Son of God sitting at the right hand of power. Sitting is a place of judgment. You will see me as the great judge. Next time we meet, you'll be in my court, and I'll be sitting, and you'll be standing. But right here, what do we see? We see the great judge, our Jesus Christ, standing. What is he doing? He is honoring, he is welcoming Stephen. Jesus is standing up to honor Stephen because Stephen was nothing. Jesus stands to honor those that know they are nothing, that know that without him they can do nothing. And he's standing up, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. They, the persecutors, they're worked up. And we find that Stephen is at rest. They are unacceptable, but Stephen is saying, Lord, receive my spirit. They are without grace. And Stephen says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He is full of grace, even in persecution. And he's full of rest and peace. Because we're not told that he died, but that he fell asleep and went into heaven. There are those who hate this message of needing Jesus. There are some, even believers, who want to believe that there's something in themselves that qualifies them to God. And when you hold that position, you are quenching the work of the Spirit in your life. When you want to stand in your own righteousness, or you want to stand in your own rituals or monuments or heritage, there's a quenching of the Spirit. God can't do everything he wants to do with you and in you and through you. And you know what I find? That when we're trusting in ourselves, there's a greater sensitivity to the stones that are thrown at us. Like, why would you throw stones at me? That hurts, Cheryl. Ow, 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 ow. There's a greater sensitivity to the stones. But when our eyes are riveted on Jesus and we know that without him we are nothing and we can do nothing, the stones don't seem to affect us. The arrows don't seem to hit their mark because we're holding up the shield of faith. What is it? It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And we're quenching 100% of the fiery darts. We've got the righteousness of Jesus Christ on as our breastplate because we're not standing in our own righteousness. We're standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our feet are shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're going forward in the power of the Lord. We've got the belt of truth on the helmet of salvation. We're not feeling the rocks and the stones because we're nothing. They're going right through us because we're nothing. They can't penetrate. They can't hurt. You see, until we come to that place that without Jesus we are nothing and could do nothing. We will never know the power of God pulsating through our lives. We will never experience the glory of God. We will not have that vision of heaven. We will never embrace the whole work of what God wants to do through us. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured before his disciples and as the disciples, Peter, James, and John, look, they see Jesus and he's standing standing with Moses and Elisha. And we're told that his countenance and his radiance is so bright as no fuller could whiten them. I love that term, you know. Use all the bleach you want. You'll never get this white. He's just radiant. And Peter, looking on at Jesus, says, Oh, Lord, it's really good that I'm seeing this. And we should build three tabernacles." One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. In other words, this is Peter's mentality. The last time that men went up onto a mountain and they saw the glory of God, it was Moses. And he came down with what? Plans for a tabernacle and rules, regulations, and rituals. And so he's thinking, here we go. Time for a tabernacle. Time for rituals. Time for more regulations. Here it comes. And we're told a cloud overshadows. And I'm going to paraphrase this cloud because this is God speaking, and this is the essence of what God is saying. Make it about Jesus and Jesus alone. Right? This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. It's all about Jesus It's not about the tabernacles. It's not about the rules and regulations. It's not about Moses, the law, or the prophets. It's all about Jesus, and we're told, and I love the way the New Living Translation puts this, suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. That's what we need to do. We need to get rid of all the props in our life and see only Jesus. We need to realize that without him, I don't know about you. For some people, this message about being nothing without Jesus does not settle well. And for, all of, for some of us, it's like, hallelujah, I don't have to be anything. Because I was really having a hard time being something. For me, this is like full relief, full release, like, hallelujah, it's all about Jesus I just get to go empty. And that's when I can expect and have the expectation of God being everything. Everything else is temporal and will disappear, but Jesus is forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Are you willing to say today truly from your heart, Without him, I am nothing. Without him, I can do nothing. If you do, and if you say this and mean it from your heart, you will look back on your own history and you will see that Jesus has been preserving you, helping you, and bringing you through to this place, and it's never been about you. And it's always been about him. It's all right to lose trust in people. It's all right to lose trust in circumstances and opportunities and have doors closed in your face. It's all right to lose trust in yourself, in your means, your talents, your strengths, your intelligence, especially if you're my age. Because when you truly realize that He is everything and without Him you can do nothing, you are ready for anything and everything. And only till you realize you are nothing without Him, only then are you qualified for anything and everything. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that you are everything you are everything we need. you are Alpha and Omega and everything in between Lord, we want to recognize right now and if you are with me let's say it together without you, we can do nothing let's say it together without you, we can do nothing and Jesus, without you we are Are nothing. Jesus, without you, we are nothing. Oh, Jesus, we need you. We need you. Oh, Lord, don't let us try to find some significance in ourselves. Stop us at every crossroad. Continually let us know that you are our everything and we don't have to be anything but yours. Thank you, Jesus, that in you we have everything we need. Everything. Lord, I pray that we would be emptied of ourselves, that we might be filled with you, filled with Jesus to the uttermost, filled with faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom, filled with power. Lord, that we might have a vision that heaven might open to us. And we might see you in all your glory and all your authority. Lord, I pray that we will get to this place that we no longer feel rocks and stones being hurled on us. Because you are everything. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.